Good morning and welcome to Cornerstone. We've invited Brother John Kenner to open this morning's meeting. John and his wife Jenny and their children have been attending for a while and we just encourage you to get to know them and to welcome them among us here in this fellowship. So John, go ahead. Good morning, everyone. I want to share a little bit about what some of the, what the Lord's done in, in my heart and uh, share the, a little bit of that with you. Uh, for those I've, I've got to meet, many of you haven't got to meet all of you. Um, for those who I haven't got to meet, I, I used to be a, uh, a pastor at a pretty mainstream evangelical church, and I pastored for about three and a half years there, and, uh, and I felt like the Lord wanted me to start preaching through the Gospel of Mark, um, which completely turned my Christian world upside down. I, uh, I've read through Mark many, many, many times, and I've always had an appreciation for the Gospels, um, but when the Lord asked me to preach through it, I studied it out, and I was preaching through it, and by the time I got about halfway through to Mark 8, I had to take a month off from the ministry, away from my church, because I was so shaken by the uh, direct uh, commands of Christ to be a follower, an obedient follower of him that uh, I uh, really felt that that is not what we were teaching in the mainstream evangelical world. I had grown up in a pretty mainstream Baptist church, just make a decision for Jesus, say the prayer, get baptized, become a good church member. And, but when I read, when I was preaching through the Gospel of Mark, Christ, he dug into my soul and he made me realize that what I was, what I was building wasn't necessarily of him and that he was commanding that if I was going to be an obedient follower that I would um, be willing to follow him in all things. And uh, I want to read to you the passage that basically uh, it, it all culminated up to chapter 8 starting in verse 34 and then I'm going to go over to Philippians. But it, in verse 34 he says, when he had called the people to him um, now, this is after uh, Peter's declaration of Jesus. Uh, he says, who do you say that I am? Uh, who do you say that I am? He goes, you are the Christ. And we also know he says, you're the son of God. And that's great. And then he starts telling him, hey, listen, I have to die. And whenever I, you know, I'm going to die and I'm gonna, you, know, you know, be put on a cross and be killed, the chief priests are going to do it. And he says, I'm not going to let that happen to you, Jesus. And he says, get behind me, Satan. And then not only go that, he goes a step further. And he says, not only get behind me, Satan, that how dare you not think that I should have to die but verse 34 says, But when he had called the people to him with his disciples, he said to them, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whatever loses life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Whoever therefore is ashamed of me and my words... In this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And when I, got, when I got to that passage and I had to preach it, I had to take a month off. I couldn't wrestle with that. Um, as much as I, I loved everybody who was around me, I just realized that the commands of Christ to be a follower of him was so much more than raise your hand, say a prayer, get baptized, and just become a good church member. But that command hasn't changed. Jesus has commanded all those who would come after him would do the same. And so, again, at Sunday school this morning, I purposely stayed out of the conversation. 
And it was so good to hear that this was the very topic being discussed this morning. And so one thing that the really Lord has really impressed in my heart is that was there a person in the New Testament that truly lost everything for the sake of the gospel? And there was, and his, he was a man named Paul, originally named Saul. And he was a man that persecuted the church. He was a man of great religious status. He was a man of great religious prestige. And yet, he gave it all up for Jesus. And I'll read to you from Philippians 3, starting in verse 4. And it says, Though I also have confidence in the flesh, if any man thinks that he has reason to trust in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, and a Hebrew of Hebrews, as concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, and concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, I have counted these things to be lost for the sake of Christ. Yes, certainly I count everything as a loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have forfeited the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is of God on the base of faith, to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if somehow I might make it to the resurrection of the dead. So the thing is that Paul says, you're dealing with people that are boasting in what, in what they have, and there's things that Paul brings up here that a lot of the people find value in. That's it's what the world treasures. And the things that he brings up, the first thing is he brings up a lineage that, that he somehow, he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's of the stock of Israel. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. He was everything a Jew wanted to be. That's who Paul was. He was a purebred Jew. He was, had the right lineage. Not only that, but he was a Pharisee. He had the religious position and prestige that every Jew wanted to have. He was the, one of the top guys and he had that position. So he had lineage, he had position, and he had accomplishment. Concerning zeal, he persecuted the church. Paul was, was trained by one of the leading teachers at the time. He had tremendous prestige. He had tremendous accomplishments in the Jewish faith. And then, and then lastly, he also was concerning the righteousness which is in the law blameless. He had status. He was, well no he was known to be a... A law keeper. He was known for that. And yet when Jesus inter, uh, intervened and found him on the road to Damascus, he walked away from all of it. Why? Because now he's following a new king. Because that stuff held nothing in regards to Christ. And he actually says this, and these words still, still shake me. He goes, but in verse 7, But what things were gained to me, I have counted these things to be lost for the sake of Christ. I've let these things go, these things that I used to take pride in, the things that I used to find value in, the things that I used to treasure, the things I used to hold on to, the things that made me feel like I was somebody, I realized they were nothing but vain and empty. They didn't really mean anything. And I count these things as lost for the sake of Christ because now I have found something. It's not just I have to lose things. It's the fact that I have found someone named Jesus who is so much of surpassing value to anything we can gain on earth that these things are literally nothing compared to what I have in Christ. They literally don't hold a candle to the glory that we have that he had, now has in Jesus. All his earthly accomplishments, everything he's worked so hard for, his whole life was spent on these things, and yet compared to Jesus, it was nothing. In fact, he calls it, like the King James, dung, rubbish, garbage compared to what the glory that he could have in Jesus. And then in verse 8, he says, Yes, certainly I count everything 
as loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have forfeited the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Let nothing, let nothing, here we see that Paul, he says that there's nothing in my life that is even comparable to just knowing Jesus. And the thing is, is when we talk about losing things on earth or forsaking things on earth, we need to understand that when Jesus was preaching, he says, unless you're willing to give up your life, better to, better to lose the whole world that you, that you don't lose your own soul. It's just that the treasure that we have in Christ is so much of surpassing value that nothing in the world even compares. And yet we sell ourselves out and our lives out to things that are no value. We build things. We build personal empires that will one day burn up and they mean nothing. And yet, but the thing that we have in Christ is of such surpassing value that Paul says, I'll walk away from all of it. I'll give it all up because I want what, what Christ is offering me. And what of surpassing uh, an idea that he said that everything else is rubbish. And these are things that the world would hold dear to find value. And he goes, and he goes nothing for Christ. And he goes, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness. I'm stopped going to try to earn treasure because treasure comes in Jesus. He can't earn it. We talked about, we talked about that a little bit this morning. That you can't earn. You can't be good enough. There's no way for you to earn your way right with God. But yet Paul says, not the righteousness which is of the law, but the righteousness um, which, is, uh, which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is of God on the basis of faith. And here is so great, because you have all these things. And he says, but what does he want? What does he want? He wants, in verse 10, I just want to know him. I just want to know him. Let me ask you a question. When you think of Jesus, when you think of the value that Jesus has, the treasure that he is, is that, is that where you come back to? I just want to know him more. I want to know, I want to, I want to experience Jesus more. I want to live for him more because that is the only thing that gives true value to somebody is to know him. And then he goes further, but he says to know him, but the power of his resurrection because we know there's no other resurrection. Jesus says, I am the resurrection. And Paul wants to know, he wants to experience that resurrection. And he also will go so far as to fellowship his sufferings. He goes, I want to walk the steps of Jesus. Here's the thing about Jesus is every time you follow, if you're a follower of Jesus, where do the steps of Jesus always lead? They always lead to the cross. But those, but those, those steps that lead to the cross also rose from the grave. So if you're a follower of Jesus, he says, pick up your cross and follow him because that's where Jesus headed. But he didn't stay there. He rose from the dead. And he goes, if somehow I might make it through the resurrection of the dead, that that's what he wanted. And I think that when we talk about what it means to follow Jesus, it means to have found something in the kingdom of God in Christ that is so of such surpassing value and worth, an eternal value and worth, that nothing on earth even compares. It doesn't hold a candle to it. Um, I was thinking about Matthew 13, and I want to end on this. But Matthew 13, it says this. He's talking about the kingdom of God. And then verse, starting in verse 44, Matthew 13, 44, he says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and with joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That's the kind of excitement that Paul had. He says, I, I, I have found something so great and so wonderful and of such surpassing glory and excellence that nothing else does. I'm, I'm going to sell the rest of it off. I'm going to get rid of all of it. I just want Jesus. If at the end of my days all I have left is, is my relationship with Christ, and that's all I needed. 
And that is what God has called us to, that we find this treasure in Christ. And you have the parable right after, the parable of the pearl of great price. It's again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who on finding one pearl of great price went and sold all that he had and bought it. Could you imagine to find something of such value that you're willing just to walk away from all of it? And let me, let me, just, let me say this. When you have found this treasure and you have experienced the excellency of knowing Christ, there is nothing so valuable to you that you're not willing to say, Lord, if it's not your will, I'm willing to walk away from it. Because Jesus not only is the most valuable thing, he wants to be the only allegiance that we have, as we were saying this morning. So um, I'm going I'm to end there. Uh, so uh, Jake, will you pray?
You know, every year in our world, in our culture, there are certain words and phrases that get added to a vocabulary. One of the most recent ones that we have right now is social distancing. I think we've all learned what that means. We've heard it too many times. And really, there's nothing, nothing social about that kind of distancing, is there? I like to call it personal distancing, but the concept of trying to maintain some distance, maybe six feet or more, between you and other people. And we've often heard a lot of discussion concerning uh, personal space. And we know how that goes, that if you get <clears throat> close to someone and you uh, get within that two to three foot range, you may get a reaction. It may be um, positive, it may be negative. And the closer you get, that reaction is going to increase either way. This morning, I, I'm rather undone as we approach this subject this morning. And we ask for your prayers to, to gain our, our, our thoughts together here. <clears throat> because as this world has been accelerating so much in the last few months especially, and there's so many things that have happened and, and all of the pressures that are upon us, my, my heart's desire is to know that Jesus is still right there in our personal space. And that we haven't pushed him away. We haven't put a, a space between us and Jesus Christ. Now, I want to put a word up here and uh, see if somebody knows what this is. That's a word in Greek called paraclete. Anyone have, know what that means? Here's an English word. Comforter or advocate. And the reason we put that there is because, now let's finish the spelling here. Okay. Who is this talking about? Jesus, the Holy Spirit in particular. The Holy Spirit. Who is Jesus? Who is God? And in the meaning of the word paraclete, you have para meaning beside and cleat to call, to call beside you, right up beside you, right up to your hip. And this is what the Holy Spirit is for us, the comforter, the Holy Spirit, our advocate. He is right up beside us. And it is so critical in life, it is so critical in the kingdom of heaven that we have a paraclete. We have one who is right up next to us. We have not pushed him away and set him off in the corner somewhere. In the last few months, and all of the upheaval of the things that have been going on through, the, through a, a health issues and health crisis across the world and, and some sort of like cultural issues and, and values and things that are being dishonored and torn up and history being thrown away in our country and all these things going on, have you been so distracted that Jesus is off in a corner somewhere instead, he's right, instead of being right beside you? This is our, our heart's interest today because of this passage, John 12, 21, our title today, Sir, We Would See Jesus. We're going to come to that passage in just a little bit, but that is a scene where it says, and certain Greeks 
who had come to the feast, which means they were men who had been Greek in origin. They had converted to, to Judaism. They were at Jerusalem to come to the Passover feast. And he walked up to Philip and said, Sir, we would see Jesus. Because they wanted to know who this Jesus was. It was near the, near the time of the Passover. There were lots of extra people, thousands of people who were there. It said in, over and over in that passage, it's talking about that many people knew. Many people knew. They understood. They'd heard about Jesus. They'd heard him speak. They'd seen or heard about his miracles. And these Greeks had come there, converted to Judaism, and they were still seeking God. And he say, went to Philip and said, Sir, we, would see, we want to see Jesus. We want to know more about him. Because this is what is important in the word see there. The most common meaning of that would simply be, we want to visually see who Jesus is. We want to see how tall he is, what he looks like, you know, have an optical view of Jesus. But in the Greek, that word actually means more than just, I want to see what he looks like. It means, I want to know Jesus. I want to get acquainted with Jesus. I want to find out about him. I want to find what makes him tick. I want to know what he's really teaching. I need to know because I'm seeking God and I want to do God's will. And this was the heart's desire of these men. We want to know about Jesus. We want to know, is he really the Messiah? And that was the, the meaning <clears throat> and their desire that they were expressing at that moment. And we'll come back to that in just a little bit. But before we leave that, those Greek men were not from Jerusalem. They were from somewhere else. There were many Greek uh, colonies that had been created hundreds of years before, and the Greek culture was spread through the Mediterranean area and all those, those areas. These men may have come from Corinth. They may have come from Pergamos. They may have come from Smyrna. They may have come from Philadelphia what became some of the early churches. It may have been that these men went on to become the core individuals who were at those early churches. And at this moment, they wanted to know about Jesus. And then they went home. And maybe they became the core of some of that. So they had to come from a great distance. They had to make plans. They made arrangements. They traveled. And they came, and they had a desire to find out something. Let me give you an example of that in our life. <clears throat> One time I read an article because I'm always reading articles, I'm always reading things. But anyway, I read this article, and it just impressed me so much. And I finished that article, and I said to my wife, I want to meet that man someday. That is impressive. There's a man who has spent his entire career believing one thing, one type of theology. And he was writing in this article and explaining how he had read and he'd studied in the Bible, and after years of study, he completely changed his thinking and was going in a different direction. I want to meet that man. That's an incredible man who would turn professionally completely around and go a different direction theologically. So it soon became uh, possible. We, we arranged to go to a conference. We traveled a number of states. took us a couple days to get there. Had to make special plans for that. I had a desire to know and to get acquainted with that man because I saw a godliness and I saw a richness of his spirit I wanted to understand what makes him tick. And we finally got to that conference and spent several days with him and got to meet him and shake his hand and became a lifelong friend. That is the kind of desire. I didn't go there just to see what he looked like, how tall he was or how chubby he was or anything like that. I wanted to know what was inside. I wanted to know him 
I want to get acquainted with him. I want to share in the spirit with him. I want to fellowship with him. And it's been a delight to know him. That's the kind of thinking that those Greek men had when they showed up there in Jerusalem. Now, <clears throat> I'd like for you to turn to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to look at a couple of passages and we'll come back to John. Matthew chapter 7, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. It's been fascinating today as we went through the Sunday school class and, and for John's talk as well, as we've been talking about coming to Jesus, following Jesus, forsaking all. Those were some of the key thoughts that was in Sunday school. And here, is, and, and John's thoughts went right along with that. We are so excited to see that all come together. But here at the end of the, of the Sermon on the Mount, in verse 20, Jesus is making a few statements here. He said, Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. Not everyone that saith unto me. This begins to be a very hard statement. He says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. It's very important that we go and we see Jesus because we want to know him. But it's even more important that we're known by him. That's what Jesus is describing here. That we would live a life, a live a life of coming and following after and forsaking all and committing our entire life unto him. That we could be right up beside him. Be in that position of the Holy Spirit being our paraclete, being right up beside us. And our whole life is, is lived through that lens of thinking through the kingdom of heaven. And we know God. We know Jesus Christ. And he knows us. <clears throat> I only, only set that there because it's kind of a, a foundation. It's the setting of that, what that intense knowing Jesus really means. We won't turn here, but in Luke 23, there's a little passage there talking about a man named Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas is not Herod the Greek. That was his dad. I'm sorry, Herod the Great was the dad of Herod Antipas. Herod the Great was alive when Jesus was born, and he killed all the infants and so forth. He died. His jurisdictions were divided up. Herod, his son, Antipas, took over the Galilean area north of the Sea of Galilee. And here was a little passage <clears throat> where uh, Pilate decides to send Jesus, who was under trial, he sends him to Herod, who happened to be in town that day because of the feast. And Herod was so excited to get to see Jesus. Because he'd heard so many things about him, it says in that passage. And he <clears throat> really wanted to see him. And, to get to, and, and he was really interested if Jesus would do a miracle that he could get to see. I give that example because I say that is an example of a man who wanted to see someone because of curiosity. It was like an entertainment factor. But I don't think it was the same kind of seeing 
that we have here with these Greek men. He didn't really want to know Jesus. He didn't really want to get acquainted with him. He just was hoping he'd do some kind of miracle in front of him. It would be curious to him. So there's those kinds of people. And I hope that that's not your interest in Jesus, that you just want to sort of be religious, to know of Jesus, to know about him. Uh, going to church, that's a good thing. It's good for my business. You know, it's a good image. We don't want to have that relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not a matter of convenience or curiosity. It needs to go to the level of knowing him and getting acquainted and becoming a part of him. Now, we'd like to, to turn and think about two other men. There's two chapters that we're looking at here, Luke 19 and John 12, that we'll get to in a little bit. But Luke 19, both of these passages contain some facts and details that are all contained within the last week of Jesus' life. We call it the Passion Week. It's the days leading up to the time of the Passover, which was the time connected to when Jesus was, was killed or was crucified for you and I. <clears throat> so both of these chapters, Luke 19 and John 12, are in that context. But let's go, first of all, to Luke 19. <clears throat> we'll start there. <clears throat> Luke 19 it begins, And Jesus entered and passed through Jericho, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. Now, this is going to tell us about Zacchaeus here a little bit. <clears throat> but it also tells us, <clears throat> excuse me, in verse 28, that when he had thus spoke, he went before ascending up to Jerusalem, and he was heading because of the Passover that was coming. But he was down in Jericho. He was down in the south, near the south end of the Dead Sea. And he, he met this man named Zacchaeus. But he was on his way to the Passover. He was on his way in a few days to the cross. And so all these events and the people that he meets are within days of his crucifixion. And Jesus entered and passed through Jericho, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. A publican, in this case, was a tax collector. He worked for the Roman government. He was a Jewish man working for the Roman government that most Jews considered an absolute traitor. And he was absolutely hated because he submitted and he made his living as a Roman employee. And tax collectors didn't have a good reputation. They didn't always just take the tax that was expected to take. They would also sometimes make uh, lies and then extract extra money from people. And so they were further hated because of that kind of practice. And he was very rich. And he sought to see Jesus, who he was, and could not for the press because he was little of stature. And he ran before and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was to pass that way. And so we have this little man, this little rich man, this little Jewish tax collector man who had a desire to see Jesus. Was it just out of curiosity? I don't think so, because of what happens next. Watch what happens when this man who wanted to see Jesus, and he made special plans, special effort, and he couldn't see, and he couldn't get around people, and he finally got up in a tree because he wanted to know, he wanted to be close, and he wanted to hear Jesus and be a part of what was going on there. 
But he was so hated, I'm sure they were keeping him back for the, some of those reasons too. There's no way we're going to let you crowd through here. And they didn't even want to touch him. And so he had a very hard time mingling through Jewish people. So he went up a tree. Verse 5, And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said unto him, Zacchaeus, and he knew his name. That's an incredible mark right there. But Jesus knows our names, every one of us. Jesus walked in here, he would know us by name because he values us. And he knows us. And he could treat us in exactly the same way. He said, Zacchaeus, make haste. Come down, for today I must abide at thy house. And he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, meaning the Jewish people that were surrounding this situation, they all murmured, saying that he was gone to be a guest with a man that is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. And Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house, for as much as he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Zacchaeus had a desire to see Jesus. And that desire became repentance and a changed life and a committed life. That he was going to absolutely change everything about the way he did his life. Because now he knew Jesus. And he had received salvation of him and received something that he had never had before. <clears throat> and Jesus makes it very clear that that was the reason that he came into this world to save people. And this man, Zacchaeus, knew that absolutely. So this was not just a curiosity thing for him to see Jesus. He, he wanted to know what Jesus was really about. He had heard so many things. Maybe he'd even heard Jesus speak before. Maybe he'd even seen some of the miracles but he really wanted to meet Jesus if possible, or at least get close to him. And it meant everything because it meant a change. It meant a repentance and a committed life because he was now a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And his life completely changed. And every way that he thought about the way he would conduct his life made a big turn. Now turn over to John chapter 12. And this is where the, the three Greeks come in play here. It says here at the beginning of John chapter 12, you have a time stamp here. It says, Then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to, Beth to Bethany, where Lazarus was, which had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. When you were just reading in Luke chapter 19, it told us there that he ascended up to Jerusalem and he went to Bethany. And so he left from, Jer from Jericho, he ascended, which is an uphill walk, <clears throat> about a day's journey or so to get up to Jerusalem. He went and had supper. At Lazarus' home, Mary and Martha uh, were there. Lazarus was resurrected. And there were many people that, that came to also see Lazarus. So we have here another time stamp that this is in that last week, that Passion Week. He has just left being with Zacchaeus and seeing that man find salvation. And he walked to Jerusalem, and now he's sitting with a man that he had raised from the dead. <clears throat> and Mary anoints him. Against the, the day of his burying, he tells them. 
And it goes on here down in verse 12. Then you see in the next day, much people that were come to the feast when they heard it that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took branches of palm trees. And you have that whole incident again described. It was also described in Luke 19. It was all these things that were right at the same time frame. And so this chapter is also connecting into those days right around that period, about a week before he goes to the cross. So you have the description of the triumphal entry. And it says in verse 18, For this cause the people also met him, for that they heard that he had done this miracle. So there's many people that were aware of Lazarus, many people that were aware of these miracles. There were many people who were there when Jesus rode on that colt, coming in as the Messiah into Jerusalem. And it was talked about with thousands and thousands of extra people. People had come from, from places all over the Mediterranean, and that's where these certain Greeks come into play. Because maybe they were there when he, they saw him, they witnessed him coming in and fulfilling prophecy. And if they didn't understand it, maybe some of these, their Jewish friends said, well, yeah, back in, in the prophecies, this is what it says, that the Messiah is going to show up in Jerusalem. He's going to be riding on a colt. And Jesus is riding just like that. He is showing himself to be the, this is it. This is the Messiah showing up here in Jerusalem. And so that word, no doubt, went everywhere. And they all were aware of it. And they also were aware that he had raised this Lazarus from the dead. So that was a tremendous, amazing thing, too. In verse 19, the Pharisees therefore said among themselves, For see ye how ye prevail nothing? Behold, the world has gone after him. And there were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. So that's where we get the idea that they were Greek people who had become converted to Judaism. They came there for the feast of the Passover to worship at the temple. The same came, therefore, to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. And Philip cometh and telleth Andrew. And again, Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. Now, this, let's back up just a little bit. What is Bethsaida? Bethsaida is the hometown of Philip and Andrew. And Peter. At the north end of the Sea of Galilee, there's a little village there. The ruins are there now, and that name Bethsaida means the, the village of, of the fishermen, or the, um, the town of the fishermen, or something along that line. It was a fishing village, and that's where these three disciples were from. And maybe there was some connection that, that these Greek individuals had some connection in northern Galilee. We don't know exactly where they came from. But they went up and they finally had figured out where Jesus was. It probably wasn't real hard to figure out because people could talk. They say, Jesus is over here right now. We just heard he was over there. And so they figured out and they found him because they wanted to see him. It took some effort. And they figured out, okay, there's some men that are kind of like the inner circle of Jesus. We really can't just walk up to Jesus and try to have a conversation with him. But let's go to one of the inner circle and ask one of them. And it's so unique here that he go, they go and they ask Philip, and Philip goes to his friend, Andrew, who grew up together. And together they go to Jesus and said, Jesus, here's some men. Here's what we know about it. Here's what they're asking for. And nothing is recorded that he said to them personally. 
but watch what he says to the group that's standing there. We don't know how big of a group this is. It's probably a big group because of the intensity of population of people that are there. But Jesus goes on and responds. It says in verse 23, and Jesus answered them saying, so he's talking to a group of people that includes these certain Greek people, Greek men. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it shall abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it. Now these men came there and they said, Sir, we would see Jesus. We want to know Jesus. We want to know what this kingdom of heaven is about. We've heard Jesus talk about the kingdom of heaven. Could you explain to us some things about this? And Jesus starts to give them some little details of that. Almost every time Jesus Christ opened his mouth, he was giving an explanation. He was giving a little window into the kingdom of heaven. And here's one, one more time. He starts this verse 25. He says, He that loveth his life shall lose it. And he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. That's a kingdom of heaven concept. And that's what they came to see. That's what they came to find out. They wanted to know what makes Jesus tick. What is this kingdom of heaven that he's talking about? So he's explaining those things that you cannot have your love of life in this world. Your love of life needs to be in an eternal sense in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 26, and if any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Once again, some description, some kingdom of heaven understanding there. <clears throat> that if you're going to serve me, it means that you will follow me. And right where I am, that's where you're going to be. That's paraclete. That's right up beside. That's not social distancing where you keep God away somewhere and you just contact him on Sundays. It's an everyday thing where he's right up beside you because he says, wherever I am, that's where you're going to be because we want to be, we're going to be together. <laughs> if you hold your spot here and just turn a couple of pages over to John, John chapter 14, <clears throat> in this very amazing passage here, uh, 14.3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. This was very important to, to Christ to explain to his disciples that where I am, that's where you're going to be, both in this life and in the world to come as well. Very much a kingdom of heaven understanding that these Greek men were hearing. This is what they wanted to know. What is, what is this belief in Christ, the Messiah, mean? How is it different than Judaism is probably another factor that they wanted. Because they, they had been Greeks, maybe pagan in some way, they came to Judaism, they were seekers of God, and now here was something else, and, and something else of God, and they wanted to know. They had a heart's desire, a burning desire to know who God is and what he thinks and, and what, how to explain this life and the, lives, the life to come, the eternal life. <clears throat> and uh, we'll skip a few verses there, but the, in verse 32... He, Jesus is simply describing there, and if, if, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. This he said, signifying what death 
he should die. So he'd been explained there also that he was about to die. He was going to be leaving this world. He was going, he'd explained it many times to disciples. He may have elaborated on it here. Maybe you don't have it all written down. But he was talking about that he was going to die. And because of that, he was going to draw all men unto him, into his kingdom. <clears throat> Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 1 as we pull this to a close. There are many passages that could be chosen at this time. There are passages that are descriptive of what it means to know Jesus Christ. What it means to be saved by him. What it means to have salvation, to have repentance, to have salvation and forgiveness and all those things and, and what those promises are what does the kingdom of heaven really mean and there's several passages but I, I chose this one in Ephesians there could be other places to go but here are descriptions of what it means to come to see Jesus and to know him and to be acquainted with him for the purpose of salvation we'll pick it up in verse 3 Ephesians 1 3 blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us. And if you're writing notes, you can, here's an outline. Here are a series of things you can write down. He hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us, unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. There is no other way to become accepted in the beloved, to become saved, to spend eternity in heaven, except through Jesus Christ. In whom, meaning Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his blood, through the blood of Christ, the forgiveness of sins because of that blood of Jesus Christ, according to the riches of his grace, wherein he hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he hath purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one, all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of his glory. And those last few phrases there, he's describing that knowing Jesus that becomes salvation, that hearing of the word of God, believing the, the word of, about Jesus Christ, 
and being given forgiveness of your sins, and then you are sealed by the Holy Spirit, and that acts like a down payment. He calls it the earnest here. The earnest here. It's a down payment of what is to come. Being sealed of the Holy Spirit is a down payment that you will live life forever, eternally with God. Because that Holy Spirit is that our paraclete. He's the one. It's God himself wants to be right beside us, right up close to us, not distant somewhere else, not sitting over in the corner, not just on Sundays, but that God himself said, I want to be, you're going to be right with me and I want to be right beside you. And that's the way I want you to live this life. And it's just going to be beyond your imagination what comes later into the future. Let's have a song.